1: Chances are that you've had a passing thought about a future event. Then let it go, only to have it occur. Experiments consistently show that human beings are as wired to know what's coming next as we are to see, feel, hear, and think. Cutting edge science is now proving the value of what has long been considered, the providence of what some consider mystic charlatans, and to show us how we can cultivate these natural abilities. Probing our capacity to sense the future and exploring the implications of mind outside of time serves as the focus for this edition of New Dimensions with our guest, Dr. Larry Dossi. Larry Dossi is a leader in bringing scientific understanding to spirituality and rigorous proof to alternative medicine. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Healing Words, the first serious look at how prayer affects healing. Dr. Dossi has authored numerous books on the role of consciousness and spirituality in healing, including The Extraordinary healing power of ordinary things, prayer is good medicine, and the power of premonitions, how knowing the future can shape our lives. Join us for the next hour as we delve into the provocative world of premonitions with our guest, Dr. Larry Dossi. My name is Michael Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Larry, welcome. It's great to be back. Thanks, yeah, Michael. Yeah, it is great to have you back. It's This has been a continuing series over time. It has. As we started... Nineteen eighty, eighty-one, something like that, with the first book. That's right. Yeah, yeah, it goes back. Uh, what was that first book? Was uh, nineteen eighty-two, uh, yeah. space time and medicine. Space time and medicine. There it is, right there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's nice to continue. The power of premonitions is an interesting piece. One of the things that struck me was that you talked about how you know again Larry Lashan's, Lawrence Lashan's book, How to Meditate. Mm-hmm. Tell yeah. us about that. Was that was, a, that was a, a, an inspiring point for you?
2: Well, I will never forget uh, reading that book. It uh, really sort of gobsmacked me and proved to me that I uh, wasn't so good a noticer (laughs) uh, as uh, as I thought I was. And uh, that book provoked me to do something that was not in vogue, uh, particularly in my surroundings in Dallas in the uh, late 60s and early 70s, which was to meditate. Uh, I realized after reading that book that I had a lot of homework to do in terms of trying to integrate my mind and body. Uh, at that time, in my my community in Dallas, there were no meditation teachers, so I just sort of took out on my own and arrived at a kind of eclectic method of sitting down, becoming quiet, and uh, learning to pay attention. So I owe Larry LaShawn a, a great deal. Uh, actually, uh, his influence on my life didn't stop there. Uh, when, I, uh, when my wife and I uh, got married uh, in 1972, for my trip reading on our honeymoon, I took Larry LaShawn's book, The Medium, The Mystic, and The Physicist, uh-huh. and that really uh, got my attention. So, in many ways, at different points in my life, uh, Larry LaShawn has been there as uh, a mentor, and uh, we still communicate and uh, exchange email messages. And uh, I just recently sent him a copy of this book. and. Uh, I'm happy to say that he smiled and uh, and gave his blessing on it. <laughs> That's great. That's great.
1: You mentioned Dallas, Chris. You were you were uh, uh, at this Dallas City Hospital, um, the uh, Medical City Dallas Medical Hospital, City where House. I was uh, chief of staff for a while.
2: Uh, it's one of Dallas's major hospitals, and I practiced internal medicine there for
1: uh, about two decades. And there was this again. There was a story that you mentioned in the in the beginning there about what happened there, a particular case that uh, really struck you and uh, it involved also a colleague. Can you tell us that story? Sure. Uh,
2: actually, this was in my uh, first year of medical practice. I was pretty much minding my own business as a conventional doctor. And uh, one night, I had a powerful dream. It, uh, at the time, I'll never forget it. It seemed like it was the most vivid dream I'd ever had in my life up to that time. Uh, but in view of the content, that made no sense to me at the, at the time. Uh, I dreamt uh, that the four-year-old son of one of my medical colleagues was having some sort of test done. He was lying uh, on his back on a, an examination table. At his head, there was a technician who was trying to do uh, some sort of test on his head. It wasn't clear to me in the dream exactly what it was. And his mother was trying to uh, comfort him. She was standing along, alongside this child, and uh, the technician was having really a great deal of trouble. The boy just went berserk. He started screaming, kicking, fighting, crying. Finally, uh, this test was going nowhere in the dream, and the technician just turned around and said, I quit. Uh, I give up. And she uh, walked away. Uh, That was the dream. I I woke up. I couldn't figure out why this dream had popped up. Uh, I went to work. uh, early the next morning and made hospital rounds and saw patients all morning. At lunch, I was sitting with the father, my colleague, uh, and uh, in walks his wife, and she's carrying this little boy in her arms, and he's crying, and his head is wet, and she proceeds to tell her husband, my dream, uh, how they just had to abort this brainwave test procedure that they were trying to do, And uh, it was an astonishing moment for me. Uh, I I knew the world didn't work like that. I didn't have any way to deal with this experience. I certainly wasn't into premonitions and uh, all the other categories of uh, so-called ESP. And so I just sort of sat on it. I I, uh, tried to deny it, you know, stuff it back in the unconscious and not deal with it. Uh, And that didn't work very well. Because my patients began to come to me and share their premonitions with me about their own illnesses, uh, so one thing led to another, and over the years, this has uh, become a point of great preoccupation with me: these premonitions,
1: how they play into our lives, and especially in healthcare environments. Well, the other thing, part of that story, was that you went into your colleague's office, yes, and shared that. Uh dream with him what happened it upset him
2: he didn't want to talk about it he refused to talk about it and never again did he ever bring this up and the reason I'm convinced is that you know is this thing of cognitive dissonance yes you you don't have a place in your worldview or your theories about how things operate in this world uh, but yet your experiences contradict that and he didn't know what to do with this with this either And he was somewhat offended by even hearing about it. So I I really realized in a heartbeat that, you know, bringing this stuff up to fellow physicians was not a great way to advance your career in medicine. (laughs)
1: Right. Uh, So one of the things that uh, I was thinking about, one of the quotes you used was the... uh, but knowing about this is that Louis Armstrong when he asked was asked about jazz a reporter and he said well if you don't know I can't explain it to you that's exactly right great well, yeah well that's sort of like premonition uh,
2: was way back then and we still can't explain them now to this day but we have something that we've never had in the premonition dialogue and conversations over the centuries we have science now that has made really a tremendous contribution uh, to our knowledge of the fact that these things really do exist and that we're not fooling ourselves when we talk about
1: a premonition sense. One of the, one of the quotes I pulled out of the book was uh, that premonitions are our birthright. Can you explain why they're our birthright? Yeah,
2: I think that we are by now genetically endowed to have them. I think we're pretty much biologically hardwired for premonitions by now. I think the way we got them was early on in our evolutionary history uh, and uh, if you think about it, any survival-oriented organism uh, would have a leg up in survival if that organism would be able to anticipate what was going to happen in terms of threats to their, uh, to their physical being. Uh, so I suspect that, who knows, perhaps through genetic mutations, this ability arose. It gave a survival advantage to the organism that possessed it. This meant that that organism would be around longer to procreate and meet our uh, evolutionary imperative, which we're told is to stay alive and procreate. And if that is so, then it's very likely that this talent for premonitions, being a little bit ahead of ourselves in space and time, would uh, have at some point become incorporated into our genetic structure and passed down through succeeding generations. So I think that's why probably we through the millennia, have by now uh, pretty much uh, seen this distributed throughout the human race. I think everybody has this to some degree, some more than others. There are premonition prodigies out there,
1: but uh, it's extremely widespread. You, you, you the, the Latin word "premoneri" uh, yeah. that that means... Forewarning. Forewarning. So this gives you some, sort of a clue about what these things tell us about Is it always that they tend to tell us something negative or something bad is going to happen? Much of the time, but not always. And uh, I'd like to
2: emphasize that. I mean, although many of these forewarnings are about things that are really morbid, because I think they need to be. That's the purpose they served originally. uh, Many uh, people have premonitions of nice things. Uh, I have a, a letter from one woman who actually saw the winning lottery numbers in a dream. Then <laughs> she won? She won. Not once, Michael, but this happened twice wow. to her. Yeah. And so that's pretty nice. That's a nice premonition to have. And also they, they uh, give us—they uh, uh, announce upcoming— uh, Oh, developments in relationships. People meet lovers in dreams that pan out to be true, for example. Uh, I've had people to tell me that they have premonitions about where the last remaining parking spot in Manhattan is. I mean, so these things do come in all flavors, you know, and they're not
1: always morbid. One of my favorite uh, writers, uh, uh, Gilbert Keith Chesterton, you quoted him, A paradox is... Truth standing on its head to attract attention. (laughs) That's my favorite definition of a paradox. And uh, I think that these things are
2: paradoxical large measure because, uh, you know, they weren't a little strange. We might uh, not even notice them. I think their strangeness helps to attract attention to them.
1: And often they come to us
2: through dreams. Oh, absolutely. You know, Carl Jung was very clear about this. I think he was one of the great explicators of premonitions uh, and precognition in the 20th century. And I think more than anybody, he gave us a picture about how to hang on to these things with his definition of the collective unconscious, something that is so deep within our mental structures that it happens on its own without us really knowing about it often. And also the collective issue is very important, too, because this is a way for people to have, for example— mutual premonitions. I mean, these things do happen to large groups of people sometimes, not just to specific individuals. And Jung gave us a model to hang our hats on about how
1: that might happen. Yeah, that's a great story of Jung and Freud in the in the book, the library, whatever, and there's a sound that, that kind of explosion or whatever that happens, and yeah. Freud denies it, and Jung says, <laughs> what do you mean? You didn't hear it? <laughs> and he also predicted that Ah, Herr Professor, and
2: I, I even pre- it, predicted it's going to happen again. And so it did all of a sudden, and Freud was extraordinarily unnerved by this. It's interesting that late in his life, Freud's own record is saying, if I had my life to live over, I would go into psychical research, which is the term in those days of uh, things like telepathy, yes. clairvoyance, ESP, and so on.
1: Yes. So I'm speaking with Dr. Larry Dossi, and... He's the author of a book entitled The Power of Premonitions, How Knowing the Future Can Shape Our Lives, and that's what we're exploring, and we're going to continue to do that in just a moment. My name is Michael Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions. My guest is Dr. Larry Dossi, and he's the author of The Power of Premonitions, How Knowing the Future Can Shape Our Lives. It's a great quote that opens one of the chapters, two quotes, actually, uh, from Alice in Wonderland. And Alice said, I'm sure my memory only works one way, Alice remarked. I can't remember things before they happen. It's a poor sort of memory that only works backwards, the Queen remarked. (laughs) Those are great quotes. Yeah, I mean, Lewis Carroll was somebody who was on it somehow. He was on it, wasn't he? Yes, I'm not sure he knew he was on it, but he was on it, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
2: As far as I know, there are no really clear records of Lewis Carroll being involved in psychical uh, events going on in uh, in Britain at that time, and
1: a lot of other people were. Yeah. What, what, how, do we explain, how do you explain the the fascination that we have with premonition, that we have with this kind of idea of, seeing the future. There's a fascination with it.
2: Well, there certainly is. I think it comes about uh, because of two things. For one thing, it so totally conflicts with our idea of the nature of time, that it's linear one way, it comes out of the past, flows into the present and into the future, and when something conflicts with that, it really does grab our attention. Uh, There's another reason why we're fascinated by these events. I've talked to a lot of people who have had these eye-popping, jaw-dropping type of premonitions that get played out in exotic, complex, camera-like detail. And a lot of people come out of those experiences, Michael, with a sense of epiphany. They, after having these experiences, have a feeling that their life has meaning and purpose that it didn't have before. It operates on levels that they never comprehended before. And there's a feeling uh, that they have some something about them that is timeless, that uh, is soul-like. And they seem to get in touch with depths of their psyche that had been hidden before that. And premonitions often just unleash that kind of understanding. It's sort of like people who come back from near-death experiences often. Now, everybody who has a premonition doesn't have that experience. But for many people, it is an awakening sort of experience.
1: Yeah, I can vouch for that for sure i've had such experiences in my life a number of times and they're extremely powerful and they're life-changing yeah yeah they're life-changing how about you yeah well i was set on a different path uh, by
2: being gobsmacked with this premonition that i had in my uh, first year of medical practice Uh, i i never saw the universe in the same way again and i'm convinced looking back on that 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 was a pivotal moment for me in Later, opening up to things that you and I have discussed on this program before, such as non-local aspects of consciousness, aspects of who we are that are infinite in space and time, and that have to do with spiritual
1: experiences. Yeah, definitely. So, um, J.B. Ryan is someone who's well-known well known to people who explore these areas. Right. And, and there exists now the Ryan Research Lab in the University of North Carolina. Um that he was the one that first started uh, creating the terms, right? Well, he uh, came
2: up with the term ESP, which, you know, the world uses now. Yes. Uh, and uh, interestingly, I've gone back and looked at uh, his uh, attitudes toward premonitions and precognition, which is sort of the stand-in term for, uh, for uh, premonitions. He had real trouble with it. He said that if there's ever a cause for a researcher like me to doubt my research it is where it comes to premonitions and the reason he struggled with this is because to him knowing something before it happened meant that an effect came before its cause and he said the cause and effect sequence is so fundamental in our thinking one is tempted just to disregard premonitions as such and just move on but he said I can't do that as a researcher because my own Experiments show me that premonitions are real. So he had the integrity to go with the data and not toss the data uh, to defend his pet theory about how the world ought to work. He's so, a man of great integrity.
1: So he must not have read John William Dunn. Uh,
2: you know, I don't know that. You know, I <laughs> Let's something say, who, tell who's, me that he John William Dunn. <laughs> John William Dunn was. Uh, is a hero of mine, I I must say. Uh, He was a man of great uh, intellect, and he was one of the first aeronautical engineers uh, in the beginning days of the airplane. And uh, he had a series of dreams over several years that were prophetic dreams, where he would dream about natural disasters, which would show up the next day in the newspapers. At first, he thought he was going mad. Uh, There was no social... Uh, uh, approval mechanism for him to to validate his experiences, but he was uh, as sane as he could be. He made a record of these things, and over years, uh, the, they, these things numbered in the hundreds. He was one of these people, Michael, who turned out to be a premonition prodigy uh, in his time, and also he carried premonitions to an extent that almost no one did for many years after him. He said these things point like an arrow toward immortality. Uh, He wrote a book late in life uh, that culminated his decades of experiences with premonitory dreams, which focused on the implications of premonitions for immortality. He came out of this at the end of his life saying that uh, immortality is real. I've proved it because of the manifestations of this timeless aspect of who I am. So he didn't hold back. He just uh, went uh, went uh,
1: all the way with this in terms of its implications. Well, the story, the great story that you related in the book about his uh, premonition about Mount Pele in Mar- Martinique, and he had gone to the French authorities. It was a French territory at the time. Gone to the French authorities and really tried to say, "Hey, you got to you got to take care of this. And it's like a volcano in the south of Martinique," and because they just laughed. They said, "You know, get out of here." Yeah. And then what happened? Forty million people died when the thing blew up. It was
2: 40,000. I'm sorry, 40,000. 40, thank you. Uh, he uh, he was uh, really distressed by this. He thought that uh, he didn't do enough to to prevent this and help save these lives. But this was one of those camera-like uh, premonitions that uh, changed his life as well. And it's interesting he was so respectable in intellectual circles uh, in his day that he had a huge effect on the arts and humanities and scientific community in his day because of his credentials and his meticulous way of documenting these things. And so, as I do in the book, I just go down and, and, and enumerate many people who pay homage to him in their writings, people you might not expect, like J.R. R. Tolkien, for example, uh, and C.S. Lewis, and many people who came after him say that they owe this man a great deal in their own thinking.
1: Well, it's interesting because he was a, an aeronautical engineer, uh, and it really proves his premonition was that he had seen 4,000. Yes. He'd missed a knot there. That's right. And he said, I'd missed a knot, <laughs> yeah. which kind of validates the, the premonition. I mean, he could
2: have just have rounded it off up to the next decimal, right, and added a zero and not told anybody about yeah. it. And I think that that's a, really a charming example of his faithfulness
1: and integrity, that he didn't do that. He said he was off by a decimal point. <laughs> and that book that came out in 1927, An Experimental with Time, really is a classic. Yeah, and Dr. Russell Targ uh, has uh, republished that book. It's now available,
2: and uh, people can easily get it off the Internet. Tell us about Russell Targ. Remote viewing. Well, Russell is uh, one of the great architects of uh, our ability to uh, see beyond ourselves in space and beyond ourselves uh, in time as well. Uh, he was one of the pioneers in the field of remote viewing, and uh, Russell stumbled onto a precognitive aspect of this that they didn't anticipate when they began doing remote viewing experiments. Uh, Just fast-forwarding and taking the remote viewing experiments to Princeton now, where 300 of these things have been done. Uh, For listeners who may not be uh, familiar with how these things are done, what happens is that a computer selects a site where a so-called sender goes, looks around, and tries to register uh, what he or she sees and send that information to a distant receiver who may be on the other side of the earth. Uh, Then the receiver records what impressions come through. The information's fed back into a computer, then who decides if there's a correlation between what was received and what was sent. Most of these turn out positive. The correlations are very strong. And here's the thing. In the majority of cases, the receiver gets the information up to a week before it's even sent. Uh, Before the computer even randomly selects, the site that's going to form the content of the information that's being sent. Uh, These uh, remote viewing experiments are so precognitive that the Princeton group decided to call them not just remote viewing experiments, but they've changed the title of this body of knowledge to precognitive remote viewing. This is one of the major databases that we have, which points to an innate uh, premonition sense in a wide variety of people. And then there's another organization called the Arlington Institute. The Arlington Institute is run by a friend of mine named John Peterson, who's one of the most respected futurists in the country. Uh, This is a Washington-based outfit. Uh, John uh, is working with people who have experience in uh, precognitive remote viewing. But the interesting thing for our listeners is that he has a website now where people can enter their own premonitions about events that they sense that are coming up that may be in the national interest for people to know about. For example, a lot of people have uh, premonitions of uh, terrorist attacks uh, somewhere in the world. uh, Almost 14 million people say that they had had premonitions of 9-11. People have premonitions of natural disasters, tsunamis, hurricanes, and so on. So John is asking people to report these to the website He has a team of statisticians and uh, data analysts who try to find find patterns in all of these premonitions. And they're trying to figure out whether these can be used in a predictive sense in the nation's best interest. So the website, in case anybody is interested, is uh, arlingtoninstitute.org. If you have a premonition, enter it into the website. You can do so anonymously. Nobody's going to bug you. And uh, we'll know if we can uh, sooner or later use these things in a predictive way for the nation's best interest.
1: Also, for the global culture as well, right? Because this, oh, oh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. it's not limited to the United States. Yeah, right, right, exactly. Uh, going back to the Ryan Research Lab for a moment. It's now run by his daughter. That's correct, Sally. And what's interesting because you mentioned you brought up 9/11, that that lab had more responses. Did not, uh, uh, regarding with respect to nine eleven, than they had, I think, in their previous history. They were flooded. Uh, and not just uh, the Ryan Institute,
2: Dean Radin's Boundary Institute, which uh, invites people to report their premonitions, was also flooded uh, by these instances, uh, which brings up some interesting aspects about nine eleven. Can I just uh, yeah, mention some please. of the strangeness about that? Yeah. Uh, Most Americans seem to think that uh, that day those four doomed planes were full of people and they crashed. That was not exactly what happened. As a matter of fact, those four doomed planes were on average 80% vacant. Uh, The range was 74% vacant to 85% vacant. Uh, So a lot of people found some reason not to travel that day. Uh, I have had the opportunity to talk to some of those people. And uh,
1: maybe, maybe perhaps I can relate one of those experiences when we come back. I'm speaking with Dr. Larry Dossi. He's the author of The Power of Premonitions How Knowing the Future Can Shape Our Lives. My name is Michael Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions. I want to also say that Larry is the author of a number of books, including Prayer is Good Medicine, Be Careful What You Pray For, Space, Time, and Medicine, Beyond Illness, Meaning in Medicine, a whole host of books. And you can get them on the website, dossi.dossi.com. Dot com. That's D O S S E Y, D O S S E Y dot com. You can also get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Michael Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions. I'm speaking with Dr. Larry Dossi, and he's the author of The Power of Premonitions, How Knowing the Future Can Shape Our Lives. And let me mention the website once again. It's dossi-dossi.com. That's D-O-S-S-E-Y, D-O-S-S-E-Y. And that's dossi-dossi.com. You can also get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. So, Larry, let, let, let's continue with your—you were talking about 9-11 and what happened there, so in different stories.
2: Yes, uh, I was uh, saying that the uh, planes, all four, were on average 80% vacant that day. Uh, recently, I had the opportunity to talk to a woman that many listeners will know about, uh, Dr. Jean Houston, who actually had a reservation on one of those flights that crashed. Uh, she was to give a talk on 9-11 at the United Nations in New York City. Uh, she said that she uh, woke up in the morning— with this profound feeling of malaise. Uh, She's a healthy woman. She said, never felt like this in her life. She knew in an instant that she could not go to New York that day. Uh, She didn't exactly know why. She didn't wake up in the morning seeing plane crashes or buildings falling or anything like that. She just knew that she could not make the trip. So she phones up the United Nations and she says, I can't come. Uh, I'm unable to do this today. They said, look, this is the United Nations, you don't cancel. Uh, She didn't go. She did not let them bully her into coming and taking the fatal plane trip. And so because she stood her ground, uh, she saved her life that day. Uh, She would have uh, crashed into one of the Twin Towers had she not listened to her premonition. And this is a very telling example, I think, because shows the diffuse nature, the ambiguous nature, the uncertain fuzzy nature of many premonitions about danger. People don't see them as a camera shot. They well up from the unconscious practically and we can't really see clearly often why we avoid certain situations. But the main thing is to listen to them as she did because of the vividness of them, because of their association with physical symptoms, and simply just paying attention.
1: It was it was another story that you related of the husband and wife who who were uh, in a car and they were driving and he worked at the uh, uh, I guess on the bottom of the uh, one of the buildings and uh, at a child care center I guess and yes and he was said to her on the way he said uh, you know if anything ever happens to me, it's okay if you want to you know uh, find somebody else something like mm-hmm. that yeah and then she responded by saying, well, it's not okay with me if you, you know, if I go first, you're not going to wind up with something. Anyway, just an interesting little aside. Yeah. And then what, what's the, what happened? Well, uh, he, uh, actually,
2: the backstory on that is that he dreamt one night that uh, his work site, which was one of the World Trade Center buildings, was falling down. People were dying and the whole world was just in chaos, he, he seemed to think. Uh, interestingly, independent of his premonition, his wife began to dream the same thing. And this is a huge sign to pay attention to a premonition if it's, if it's reinforced uh, independently by other people you're close to. Uh, well, she told him her premonition, then he told her his, uh, and, but they were extremely intellectually oriented, analytical, logical people uh, who did not put uh, any credence into these premonitions. Uh, And he paid the ultimate price. And, of course, they didn't know the date. They did not know the date. And so we don't want to fault them for that. I mean, even if he had wanted to stay away from work, which day would he have picked? Right. Uh, This is one of the uh, uh, criticisms, uh, I think justly so, of premonitions. They don't come like these digital photographs with the time and date at the bottom of them. And so people are often left with uh, imprecision and uh, not knowing which way to jump with these things. But not always. Sometimes they happen so close on with, for example, Jean Houston's premonition that she knew when to avoid traveling. It was on the the, the day immediately following her pre premonition, uh, or the day of the premonition. In her case, she woke up feeling this this way,
1: uh, and it did save her life. What What's interesting also too is that that now that the the, uh, the tape recordings of, of cell phone calls and all that were, have been released, uh, there's been a lot of other stories that have come out where people did have some kind of premonition as to what was happening. And so that's fascinating information. I mean, it's like whole new—so It's so there was a lot of energy around this. Oh, listen, Michael, uh, it's really uh,
2: a treasure waiting to be. I think, explored by somebody in a meaningful way. I will never forget when I was researching this book, one day I just decided to Google dreams of 9-11, and I got back 13,900,000 hits. I spent days uh, chasing these things down and reading about them on the Internet. Uh, Some of these things were so vivid to the people who experienced them that they made videos of them and posted them on YouTube, Uh, It's a fascinating thing to do, to go explore some of these things. Many of these people had camera-like impressions, but again, as we were saying, rarely did anybody come up with the specific date. They had uh, extraordinarily vivid pictorial impressions of this, but uh, in order to make it really practical, one would need something on the order of a date and time. And that's uh, not often present, at least in that particular situation.
1: Also, I think one of the things, another thing that was so impressive to me that so really poignant that came through was that uh, many of these uh, f- cell phone calls were from people who really knew they were going to die. And they were very calm and very deliberate and very, you know, just they weren't panicky. They weren't freaking out. They were just telling it what was happening and, and for them. And it was like, it was like, that was so touching. I oh, know it, it was. Powerful.
2: Well, can I give you one other example that Please. makes certain uh, key points about the nature of these things? Uh, this has to do with a woman named uh, Amanda. She's called this in the Ryan archives, where this uh, is from. She was a young mother in Washington State. And she dreamed one night that a chandelier in her baby's room fell out of the ceiling onto the baby and wrecked the crib, which was under the chandelier. Uh, This horrified her. She woke up. uh, She uh, awakened her husband, told him about the dream. He told her, look, it's silly. It's just a dream. Go back to sleep, which he promptly did. Uh, She couldn't. She was terrified. In the dream, uh, I might add, she looked at a uh, clock that was on the baby's bureau when she went in and saw that the chandelier had fallen in the dream. And it read 435 in the morning. Uh, Well, unable to go back to sleep, this woman goes in and brings the baby back to bed with her and her husband. A couple of hours later, they're both awakened by a loud crash. She goes into the baby's room. The chandelier has indeed fallen onto the crib and has demolished the crib. The baby certainly would have been uh, injured severely or probably killed if she had not acted on her premonition to rescue the baby. And she looked at the clock, uh, and it was 435. So this is one example where someone dreamed a premonition down to the minute, uh, and uh, acted on this and saved uh, saved her infant's life. So when she went in the baby's
1: room, the clock was 4:35. So she was seeing the clock.
2: She dreamt in the she dreamt that the thing uh, happened at 4:35. She saw a clock in the dream, and then when the chandelier actually fell, and she went into the room to see what the noise was all about, the clock read indeed 435 so she got it right down to the minute pretty impressive
1: now, often a many of these um, precognitive uh, I, dreams or premonitions whatever often are outside because they're outside of time uh, often they can't be specified to a particular event or date what about that yeah well that's
2: exactly true and this is always a point that uh Critics uh pick up on, yes you know they say, well, if these things are so hot and useful, you know why don't you uh, why don't you all just uh, uh, avoid all uh, uh, disasters and health crises and so on? I don't know why they're not uh, all that specific, but there is a a widespread impression in psychical research, uh, ESP parapsychological research that the unconscious does not do numbers very well. (laughs) And so when you think about date and time, what are they but numbers and their way of calculating them? Uh, So it may be that there's just something inherent about date and time that uh, just doesn't come through uh, very well for people, and I don't know how we would get around that. There are instances, however, where it just doesn't make any difference as to date and time because the things are so close on that uh, one doesn't need to know exactly uh, when and where. Uh, May I give you an example of that? Please. There was an event that happened in 1950 that really riveted the nation for about a week or 10 days because it was published in Life magazine, which was huge in the 50s. And it had to do with a little church in Beatrice, Nebraska, population about 5,000 at the time, And uh, it had uh, to do with Westside Baptist Church in this little town. There were 15 choir members who met every Wednesday night at 7.20. They cranked up choir practice at 7.25. But on this particular Wednesday night, uh, nobody showed up. It was the first time in the history of this church that there was a complete no-show. Well, at 7.25, the church explodes. It blew up. There was a natural gas leak they later discovered. It just demolished the thing. If anybody had been inside, they would have been killed. But nobody was hurt because nobody was there. So one wonders, uh, why didn't they show up? Every one of these choir members were interviewed, and not one had a clue that the church was going to blow up. They had trivial, mundane reasons why they didn't come on time that night. One woman was doing ironing, a couple of kids got carried away with homework, and so on. But this was a very unconscious Premonition that prompted avoidance that saved fifteen lives, but yet which nobody had a clue about time, place, uh, or the exact nature of this. So this, to me, is a stunning example of how this stuff can operate at an unconscious level and can save our skins, even though we, though we don't know this
1: really is going to happen. Well, again, paying attention, it's like not just having a uh, a vivid. Look or vivid, a vivid premonition, but that the feeling level is important. They, you know, well, I felt like I felt like, that's what I felt, and this is what I did. So, it, so often it comes in different ways, right? That's right. Yeah. Also, uh, I think this is really important. This thing
2: you mentioned about the feeling level and the particular feeling level that I would emphasize that uh, seems to mediate so many of these things is love and empathy and compassion. Uh, if you Look at the Amanda story where the chandelier fell. This is the mother-child bond that's operating here. And Jung uh, told us that the most primordial fundamental archetype in human existence is the parent-child bond. He even said it's the mother-child bond. Mm. And if you had to pick uh, one context where most premonitions happen, I would wedge you that it's going to be a mother and a child she knows her child is in danger she has a premonition about it and she tries to act on it we see this over and over again and you can't understand that bond in those kinds of actions that bringing in love
1: yeah it's it's different i think with mothers and 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 progeny and fathers and progeny there's a different dynamic there certainly is and we see it all the time in the in
2: so many of these examples in my book Where the mother has the premonition, as in the Amanda story, she tries to interest her husband in it, you know, and in this case, he said, it's silly, it's a
1: dream, go back to sleep. (laughs) So much for fathers. So I'm speaking with Dr. Larry Dossey, and he's the author of a book entitled The Power of Premonitions, How Knowing the Future Can Shape Our Lives. And that's what we're exploring, and we're going to continue to do that in just a moment. My name is Michael Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions. is Dr. Larry Dossey, the author of The Power of Premonitions, How Knowing the Future Can Shape Our Lives. Also, Meaning in Medicine, Prayers, Good Medicine. Also, Be Careful What You Pray For, uh, The Best-Selling Healing Words, and other books as well. Larry's been quite prolific in his writing. And uh, If you'd like more information, you can go to the website, dossiedossie.com. That's D-O-S-S-E-Y D-O-S-S-E-Y d-o-s-s-e-y.com. You can also get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. Larry, there's a word that I, I'm struck by. It's really a wonderful word. And you talked about it in the book, numinous. And I guess Rudolf Otto was the first one to coin this. But it's such a wonderful word, numinous. I love it myself, yeah. yeah. Actually, the word
2: comes from uh, the Latin, and it means touched by the divine, which gets back to something we were saying earlier. Many people who have uh, vivid Complex premonitions that prove to be true feel like they've had an epiphany, as if they have been touched by the divine. I think "numinous" is the perfect word to describe that
1: experience. It also explains the light around many saints. That you use. like we're, we're looking at a picture here. Is a there's a whole light around, it. often there's light around, like you see fixtures of so you know whoever Jesus looked like, and there's always a light around. Yes. Uh, certain people have told me that their premonitions feel as if
2: they are lit from within, which I think is very, uh, really uh, right on. Uh, one woman told me that she felt her premonitions were in italics; <laughs> they were emphasized uh, in a certain way in her experience, and uh, they just seem special. You know, they they seem vivid; they seem realer than real, as many people will say. Uh, and this is a valuable way to. Uh, separate those premonitions and dreams, for example, that are just ho hum and that clearly are nothing more than fantasy.
1: Uh, but if they have this numinous quality, it's best to pay attention to them. Richard Buck's book *Cosmic Consciousness* comes to mind because he he collected all these stories of you know people down through the ages who had had experiences, and often they were, you know, they were premonitions, precognitive, uh, and they were they also were light, you know, they were luminous, numinous, exactly. Uh, interesting. Yeah. So we've been talking about this, and I'm sure that some of our listeners are saying, well, okay, I'm sold. What do I do? How do, <laughs> how do I develop this in myself? What do I, where do I go? What do I do? Well, I would say, first of all, uh, don't try
2: too hard. <laughs> you know, a lot of people do want to try to have these things on demand, and that's just the way to run them away. Uh, you can't control or uh, manipulate these things. They don't dance to air tune. I think it's more the case that uh, premonitions do us instead of our doing them. Uh, But having said that, there are definitely things people can do to invite them into their life and make them more frequent, more likely to show up. Uh, One thing that always comes up is uh, keeping a dream diary. Uh, People who are really good at this tell me that this really enhances not just their ability to remember them when they have them. But they say also that they make them more frequent. Uh, actually, I've tried this myself. And uh, when I did it, uh, my dreams just flowered. Uh, actually, it caused some problems for me. I began to be late for work every morning <laughs> because they were so complex. I would just carry away, get carried away, you know, rotting them down in the morning. But uh, the other thing that just floats to the top in terms of how to enhance these is a the practice of meditation. Uh, This has to be the A number one recommendation, I think, for anyone who wants to become more premonition prone. Uh, Dean Radin and others who've done research in this field have correlated people's behaviors and practices with how they score on premonition tests, certain tests for precognition. And the best predictor of who's going to do well on these tests is who has a meditation practice. And I think this just helps us learn to pay attention to what wells up from inside, whether it's during the waking state or during sleep. Uh, We just are less prone to be scattered. The uh, chatter uh, that occurs during our waking life is more easily penetrated uh, by premonitions and visions when we have them. So meditation, I think, has to be the A number one recommendation for anyone who wants to invite these things into their
1: life. You know, it's interesting, I think, some of the research that's gone on with uh, uh, Tibetan monks, particularly that meditate, and, and how there's certain areas of the brain that get activated uh, that have to do with the very nature of what we're talking about.
2: Oh, exactly.
1: You know, I, I uh, would add one other
2: recommendation. I think it helps to read about these, these things, how they appear to other people, how they describe them, what it's like for them. Uh, We mentioned Sally Feather earlier. She has a book out called The Gift, which is an accumulation of stories that are on file at the Ryan Center in uh, Durham, North Carolina. Uh, It really does help to get uh, a handle on your own if you know what these are like for others. So I would really recommend a a volume, uh, whether it's uh, Dr. Feather's or somebody else's, or my own book about uh, what these things actually
1: look like in the lives of others. Also, the surprising percentage number of people that that either believe in these experiences or have these experiences. Yeah. I mean, it's way above the average. Oh, it is. Uh, this is one of the m- most common so-called psi
2: or parapsychological events that people record in their lives. Uh, and it gets back to what you and I were talking about earlier, that it seems very likely that these things are innate. We're innately predisposed for these, uh, probably genetically by now. Uh, so... Uh, I think also that one reason we ought to pay attention to them is not just because of curiosities or amusement. These things really can, Michael, save our skins. You know, just to emphasize again, they seem to be related to survival uh, in so many instances. And so uh, there are practical reasons why we
1: ought to be interested in this. Also, we're, we're all familiar with, of course, the 9-11 disaster. There's some others that we're not so familiar with. I'm thinking of the, the Aberfan disaster, uh-huh. which occurred in 1966 in yep. southern uh, Great Britain. Can you talk about that?
2: Well, this was a riveting event in the history of the British people, uh, and uh, it took place in southern Wales, a little mining town called Aberfan. Uh, outside of Aberfan, there were several mountains of coal refuse, coal mine tailings, but one day, one of these things got loose and came right down through the village and eradicated Pantglass Junior School, killing 116 little children and a bunch of their teachers. Uh, and it was just a tragedy that uh, uh, deeply moved uh, the entire British uh, nation. It set off the longest investigation in parma- parliamentary history in Britain. Uh, There was an interesting psychiatrist, uh, Dr. John Barker, who was uh, practicing practicing in a little town close uh, by Aberfan, and he began to get wind of premonitions that people were describing that they had before this happened. He solicited these premonitions in an ad in the newspaper, and he was uh, flooded with these things. He investigated 24 of them. Some people saw Aberfan spelled out, and big block letters like the Hollywood sign. Uh, one woman said that she saw a big black a black mountain come down and wipe out a schoolhouse. Some of these things were very very specific. So it prompted uh, John Barker to organize something called the British uh, Premonitions Registry to try to accumulate these things and use them in a predictive way. It didn't go very far because they had horrible PR. People made fun of them. They were undermanned and understaffed. Uh, but uh, as you and I have already mentioned, this effort to use these things in a predictive
1: way has resurfaced in our country at the Arlington Institute. Yes. What's interesting is that I, I think that that this was such a moving experience for the British people because many of the people that were involved had gone had gone down to that part of the country because of of the bombings in World War Two and this, uh, exactly. the Blitz and all that. And so there was this connection. Yeah. So everybody felt the connection. There was a heart connection
2: with the people uh, in southern Wales. Yeah, those people at the time of uh, Aberfan would have been, uh, be t- oh, been young children during World War Two. They would have been 20 and 30 years old by the time Aberfan happened. And so there really was this emotional, poignant link between so many Brits uh, and that
1: part of uh, the U.K. Yes, uh uh-huh. so it brings up again, we go back to the how the often the uh the heart connection is so important. we're talking about relationship and and uh that's so true,
2: yeah, it certainly mediates premonitions. There's one really interesting case in the book of a mother who sent her daughter, her beloved daughter, off to college uh and uh the mother wasn't handling this very well; she really missed this girl. And she was writing her a letter one night, and she had to stop writing because her the fingers on her right hand started burning. She couldn't hold the pen. So she quit writing, and just a few minutes later, she got a call from the college telling her that her daughter had burned her hand in a chemistry lab accident.
1: Wow. Same fingers. A, a terrific premonition. Yeah. So where do you see the future taking us? I mean, clearly, the Uh, the the research and the science, I mean, I'm thinking of physics and now uh, biology, and there's so much related to what's happening, it's changing so fast. Uh, So where do you see it going?
2: Well, we're agonizing our way into a new model of consciousness. This is just part of the evidence uh, pointing uh, in this direction. I think we can predict where this is going to head. We're going to win the day uh, to the extent that we're going to finally Uh, outlive this materialistic, reductionistic idea that we have of equating consciousness purely with the brain that is incapable of itself of knowing something outside the cranium. Uh, Clearly, this uh, evidence uh, is accumulating. We've got science now. There are many categories of evidence favoring premonitions. So there's no going back. Uh, You know, the skeptics will scream and fight and say, we're trying to take this stuff back to the Middle Ages, but that's just going to uh, fade away. And when we come out of this, we're going to have a model of consciousness that is what I call non-local, pointing toward immortality, eternality, and an essentially spiritual view of who we are, Michael.
1: Well, sounds great to me. (laughs) I'm all for it. (laughs) Larry, thanks once again for being with us. It's been a pleasure talking to you. It certainly has for me, too. I've been speaking with Larry Dossey, the author of The Power of Premonitions, How Knowing the Future Can Shape Our Lives, published by Dutton. The website is dosseydossey.com, D-O-S-S-E-Y, D-O-S-S-E-Y.com, and you can also get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Michael Toms, and
0: you've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3313. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973 thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a 1,000 hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine willis toms Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.